Welcome to Park Church. We are glad that you uh, are here with us. And we're glad that you have decided to spend your Easter morning, your Easter Sunday, here with us. Uh, if you're someone who is here, you know, most weeks, we're really glad to see you. If you invited or brought someone with you, we're so happy that you did that. But if you're visiting with us this morning, whether you're family or friends, or whether you're just checking out a church uh, on Easter morning, we want to say to you, we're really glad that you have decided to be here with you. Um, this church, we hope you know this. We hope you can feel this already. This church is designed um, for you. And I don't really know who you are, but it's designed for you because we believe that God loves you, that God is for you. And so regardless of your background, regardless of where you've come from, your faith or no faith, we are really glad that you are here this morning and that God has put you here this morning. My name is Matt. I am a pastor here on staff, and I have the privilege to wrap up our uh, series that have occupied us for the last three weeks. This is the fourth week, and it's called Four Days That Changed the World. We've been looking at the four days that surround Jesus' death and resurrection, that Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and this morning we're looking at uh, that Sunday, Easter Sunday, the, the Sunday that changed the world. I want to start, though, not by focusing on uh, those four days to begin with that changed the world, but another day that feels like it will change the world. And I'm not talking about when Avengers uh, Endgame comes out in a few days. That will change the world. Um, what I'm talking about is what happened on this past Monday. I don't know if you're anything like me, but I was glued to the screen. I was watching it on a computer. Um, glued to the screen while that great cathedral in the center of Paris, Notre Dame, when that um, burned and fell. I was glued to the screen, I think in part because any time an iconic structure like that, an iconic building is destroyed, it burns, it just, it captures our attention, it's creepy, it's very unsettling. Now, I have to have you know, I'm not like a European historian, I'm not an architecture guy, I'm not a Catholic cathedral guy, that's not my thing. Um, I had never been to the cathedral there. I had never stood inside of it and seen how beautiful it was in person. I just had never, I've actually never been to Paris. I've never been across the Atlantic, to be perfectly honest. Um, the thing that grabbed my attention as I was sitting there watching it, listening to them talk about the history, was just how long it had been there. It had been there, I mean, for like 800 years. Construction started on it, I think in 1163. It was over 850 years ago. For about 750-ish years, it had functioned as a building where people could come and worship God. It had been there forever. I mean, it had been there through the medieval times, and I'm not talking about the thing with the joust and the dinner, right? Um, it had been there through the plague. It had lasted through that. It was through medieval wars, right? Um, it was there for the French Revolution. Napoleon was actually crowned emperor of France in its right in the middle of that thing, right? It had been through it. It had even been through uh, the Nazi occupation of Paris. This building had been through a lot. The part of it that burned wasn't the stone walls, obviously, but it was actually the wooden roof. This thick uh, wooden structure, this kind of dense latticework that was actually called the forest. And they called it the forest because when you looked in it, there was just oak beam after oak beam that looked like a dense forest. And this wood, that's actually what burned in that building. That wood, that roof, had been there for 800 years. 
For 800 years, it had provided safety uh, from the elements, from whoever was in that building. That wood was cut down probably a long time before it was actually used, uh, before construction began. And the trees that were used, that were cut down for that wood, were probably three to 400 years old at the time that they were cut down. What I'm telling you is that that wood that burned was over 1,000 years old. 1,000. And for 800 years, years, that roof and that wood had done its job. That's about 300,000 days. For 300,000 days, that roof, that wood had done its job. And listen, nobody expected it to not last one more day. No one expected that. But when I watched that great spire burn up and fall through that ancient roof, the thing that I thought to myself was that nothing lasts forever. Nothing lasts forever. The fact is, we don't need ancient roofs to remind us of that or to tell us of that, though. How many of us have had to um, have our own roof replaced recently, right? Mine is due to be replaced. I know that because there's a water stain above our youngest son's bed that threatens him every time it rains, right? Um, Our roof is up. How many of you, (laughs) how many of you, um, have had to have your shoes replaced, right? Your tires replaced. I have to have my teeth replaced. I have one more appointment for an implant to be put back in, so I have another molar back here, right? Even our teeth don't last. Nothing lasts forever. The thing is, though, life has a tendency to remind us of this in very difficult, very real, very painful ways. Like when the job that you had hoped in to provide for your present and to provide for your future is all of a sudden taken from you or moved across the country or moved to a different country, right? And that security, it's no longer there. It's been taken from you. Or the relationship that you had put that hope in, that faith in, for that person to love you back and to be there for you, all of a sudden that person turns their back on you or that person doesn't treat you the way that they vowed to treat you, right? Nothing, nothing lasts forever. Um, The diamond might last forever, but not always the affection of the one on whose finger it sits or the one who gave it. We are reminded of this in the most poignant and um, devastating ways when someone who we love gets taken from us unexpectedly, right? When their health fails them and it fails us as well. We're reminded that nothing lasts forever, including us. We don't last forever. Life has a hard way of reminding us of this. What Easter is all about. What Easter is, is the astonishing story of the one thing that does last forever. Of the one person who will not fail us. Of the one person who outlasts even the most powerful force that this world or any world can throw at him. That's death itself. Easter is the story of the one who lasts. If that is true, then it truly is a day that has changed the world, not least of all yours, if you are willing or able to see it. Our hope for you this morning, our hope for you every week, is that you can come to see it. So I want to take you back to the very first Easter morning. Actually, I want to take you back a few days before then, to that Thursday. And this is where our series sort of kicked off a few weeks ago. We talked about this meal over here. 
um, on the Thursday before Jesus died, he celebrated a meal just like this with his closest followers. And it was a Passover meal. Passover being the celebration that the Jewish people, God's people had for 1,500 years, year after year after year, to celebrate and to remember how God freed them from slavery. Jesus chose to come to Jerusalem, to come to suffer and to die and to be raised during the weekend of the Passover celebration in order to communicate to each and every one of us that what his death and resurrection is about is about the same thing. It is about freedom. Not just freedom from slavery, though, freedom from every single thing that keeps us imprisoned, not least of all, our sin. And so two weeks ago, we talked about that. What happened on that Friday was that Jesus was nailed to the cross. And what we said was that when he died there, he was the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And we used an image to talk about it that was a little um, ordinary and maybe a little underwhelming for the magnitude of what happened. But here is the image that Jesus was like a garbage man who comes to us, finds our garbage, picks it up out of our house, puts it on his back, walks it to his truck, puts it in the truck, drives it away so that it is destroyed in the dump. So that he deals with our garbage, our sin, so that we don't have to, so that we could live free from it. That's what happened on that Friday. And late in the afternoon on that Friday, uh, he actually died there on the cross. Now, this presented a problem for the people who wanted to be there for Jesus. Because in those days, the day turned at, uh, at sundown. So Saturday would have started right when the sun went all the way down. And Jesus died very late in the afternoon. This was a problem because they were all Jewish and Saturday was a Sabbath and they couldn't do any work on the Sabbath. They couldn't do any work at all. And so if they couldn't take Jesus' body down off the cross and put it into a tomb before the sun went down, they would have had to have left it up on the cross for 24 hours. And I'll leave it to your imagination what could happen in the hot sun with birds and vultures in 24 hours with a corpse, right? It was important. So that's what they did. They got it down. They quickly wrapped it up as fast as they could. They put it in the tomb. They closed the big stone door over the tomb. And they went home. And all they could do on that Saturday was sit in their grief about what they lost. And then... Sunday morning comes. And we're going to pick it up with uh, the Gospel of John. John was one of the men who wrote a book about Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, right? The Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. John was a guy who writes a very personal, very intimate account of it. He was there throughout Jesus' entire uh, ministry. He was there for all of the miracles. He was there for the feedings. He was there for the teachings. He was actually there when Jesus died on the cross. And Jesus actually said to him, hey, John, when I die, um, can you take can you take in my mother? Can you take care of her? And John did. John took care of Jesus' mother for the rest of her life. And um, so we know that John has all of the stories of Jesus growing up, right? John got to hear them all. I hope someday in some cave, in some pot in Jerusalem somewhere, they found some scroll of like, this is Jesus' first word, and this is how he took his first step, and this is when he was potty trained, right? Um, but John tells us this intimate story, and he begins the story in the way that really all of the gospel writers talked about it, by focusing on the women, the women who were faithful to Jesus, even, even, even through the end. Men, we don't fare so well in the gospel accounts of what happened, but the women do. And John focuses all of his attention on one woman whose name is Mary Magdalene. This is not Mary, the mother of Jesus. This is a different woman, Mary Magdalene. They didn't have a lot of names back then. Um, this is Mary Magdalene. This was a woman whose life had been changed by Jesus. 
This is a woman who had left a lot, good things and bad things, to come and follow after him. She gave herself into his, she trusted him. She had put her hope in him. And so that's kind of where our story begins. And John starts, John starts by saying, early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the tomb. Now, um, their week started on Sunday. This was early on Sunday morning while it was still dark. Mary goes to the tomb and finds that the door to the tomb is no longer there. Now, what Mary is not thinking is, oh great, Jesus is alive. She expected what everyone expected, dead people stay dead. That's what she expected. So when she went there, she wasn't happy, she was afraid. Because why was that stone off of the tomb? Did someone come and try to rob the tomb? Did one of Jesus' enemies come and try to um, desecrate his body, desecrate the tomb? She doesn't quite know what to do with this, so she runs back to town. She finds Peter, who is Jesus' main follower, and John, who wrote this. Um, She finds Peter and John, and they come running back to the tomb. John records that he was a better athlete than Peter was, so he got there first, and he's kind of waiting for Peter, you know, get get in shape. Um, So they go in. They find that the body is gone. All that's there is the linen that was used to wrap him. John and Peter, they don't know what to do with this. They're crushed as well, so they go home. But Mary can't quite go home. Mary can't quite go home. She is stuck between her grief, her sadness, the questions of where is his body. She's stuck between that and the fact that she is just so faithful to Jesus. And so she's stuck there, unable to move forward, unable to go anywhere. And what she does is she's stuck there weeping outside of the tomb. John says, but Mary stood weeping outside of the tomb. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb. That's all that she could do. Because when she lost Jesus, what she lost was everything. She had put her hope, her faith, her future into this person. She had put so much trust. She had put such great expectations on him. Because he said to put those expectations on him. He said it. He said, look, if you stick with me, if you follow me, you will have life like you've never had it before. Life abundantly. You will find hope, you will find joy, you will find direction. I will be with you always. You can expect all of that from me and more. And Mary did that. That's exactly what Mary did. So when she stands outside of this tomb, think about what she's lost. She's lost everything. And all she could do is bend over and peer in. And through her tears, what she sees is two angels. Two angels uh, in white, sitting there with a body of Jesus had been lying, one at the head and the other at the feet. They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? That's a, it's a great question. Why are you weeping? Isn't that the question that all of us want to be asked when we're sad, but few people have the courage to ask, and we often don't have the courage to honestly answer? Why are you weeping? These two angels, certainly they knew why she was weeping. They were sent by God. God knew why she was weeping. I like this question because it reminds us that even though God knows that we're sad and God knows why we're sad, he wants us to know that he cares why we're sad. Because God cares about our tears. God cares about that. But the angels know, God knows, and we know why she's sad. Because she has lost Jesus. She has lost this person who she has given up everything to follow, to trust in, to put her faith in. The answer that Mary gives, though, is a little more nuanced than that. It's a little more actually faithful 
than that. What she says is they have taken away my Lord. And I do not know where they have laid him. You see, Mary set her alarm clock so that she could be the first person there on that tomb in that day. She wanted to be the first one there because all day Saturday, all she could do was sit there and think about what she's lost and grieve over it and mourn it. All she could think about is what can I still do for him? And the only thing that she could find to do for him was to actually give him the proper burial that he was worthy of. So she went, she went um, to take his body out, right, and to anoint him with spices and with oil and to take care of him in the way that he should be taken care of, to wrap him up, to give him the burial that's of a holy man like Jesus. And that's what she goes to do. And so now, not only has she lost the one in whom she trusts, who she follows, but his physical body has also been taken from her. Everything has been taken from Mary in this moment. Now, when we sit and reflect on this sort of faith, this sort of um, trust in Jesus, we might be thinking to us, um, that's not the way I think of this. That's not the way I follow Jesus. For me, it's, you know, once a week, I'll give him a thought. For me, faith is kind of on the periphery. For me, maybe once a month, once a year, right? It's not that big of a deal. It's not at the center. But for Mary, this was at the very center of who she was. This was at the center of who she became. For Mary, what she lost on that one weekend was the thing that she cared the most about in the world, the person who she cared the most about in the world. In that one weekend, all of it was gone. All of it was taken from her. Now, to go from her story to ours, I think, I bet, we know pieces of what this actually feels like. Of what this, right? To have something or someone who we put our hope in, who we put our faith in, who we trust and who we expect great things from, to let us down or to fail us or to be taken from us. We know what that's like. Whether it's an 800-year-old roof that we expected to be there or your retirement fund, your home equity that you expected to be there, if not for some bubble bursting, right, or some bank doing what it did, right? Or that relationship that you had put your, your, your trust in, your faith in, that person who vowed to always love you back. And for some reason now, you, you don't know, they're not. Or the job that you hoped in, right? Or the dream that you had, the path for your life that you had planned out that isn't quite working out, the life that you have built for yourself, right? With the right home and the right yard and the right kitchen and the right school and the right friends for your children. You've built it all. And for some reason or another, it's been taken from you. You know what that's like. Maybe you know what it's like to have um, the things that you work towards, the things that you want to accomplish, the goals that you set, the achievements that you set out for um, to just not come through for you, to not deliver for you, to not be fulfilled for you. You know what that's like. We know what that's like. The problem is not, though, when we put reasonable hopes, reasonable expectations in those things. Because it's reasonable to expect that your retirement fund is going to be there for you. It's reasonable to expect that, right? It's reasonable to expect that your husband, your wife, your mom, your dad are going to actually love you back 
and be there for you. It's reasonable to expect that. We should expect those things, right? It's reasonable for us to expect that the work of our hands, the work of our heart, our blood, sweat, and tears is going in some way to fulfill us, some way to make us happy. It's reasonable to want that, to expect that, to hope that. Where we get into trouble, though, is not when we put reasonable expectations on reasonable things, but when we put unreasonable expectations on unreasonable things to unreasonably deliver for us. When we put ultimate hope in things that are penultimate, when we put um, limitless faith in things that are limited, when we expect things to last for us that are not going to last, listen, when we put God-sized expectations on things that are not God-sized and are never going to be and never were and can't possibly bear the weight of your hope and expectations and are guaranteed to fail. It's why I've talked to so many people who um, you study hard, your path is set, you work for it, you grind, you achieve, you accomplish, you climb the ladder, and you get to a point and you look around and say, you know what, none of this is actually making me ultimately happy. None of this is really ultimately fulfilling me. And the thing is, of course it's not. Because none of that's supposed to ultimately fulfill. None of that's supposed to ultimately make you happy. There is something more to life than that. Um, It's why the more I've lived on this earth, the more I've seen it. Whether you've been married for five years, for 50 years, or for five months, someday you're going to wake up uh, next to that person in your bed and say, you know, I don't, don't feel the same way anymore. Things don't feel right. This person doesn't make me happy. This person doesn't fulfill me anymore. So now what do I do? Am I in the wrong place? Should I stick? Like, have I made a huge mistake? The thing is, you have made a huge mistake. Not the mistake of being with that person, but the mistake of thinking that that person could fulfill all of your wildest dreams and all of your wildest fantasies in a way that they never could because they're not your savior. They're your spouse. You can't expect unexpectable things from people. The fact is, there are countless ways that we do this, that we throw ourselves in to people, to things, to pursuits, where we expect God-sized things out of things that are just by definition, by nature, not God-sized, and then we get crushed because of it. Listen, there is only one thing, one person who can actually deliver on the promises, who can actually come through, who actually lasts, who's actually there, and it happens to be the person who Mary did put her faith in, even though, even though she couldn't see him. She couldn't see it at the time. And here's how the story continues. When she had said this, Mary turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not know that it was Jesus. She couldn't recognize him for who he was. Imagine that for a second. Everything that you hope for, that you dream about, that you trust in, that you want, that you expect, All of it is standing right in front of you, closer to you than I am to you right now, and you can't recognize it for what it is. Imagine that for a second. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Which is the same exact thing that the angel said. He does care about our tears. He said, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you looking for? And supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, shh. Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. And before this gardener can even respond, Mary turns and walks away. 
She turns and walks away, thinking to herself, Jesus is dead. He's actually physically been taken from me now. This gardener is not helpful. I am helpless. I am hopeless. I'm joining the guys. I'm going home. And then Jesus said the word that absolutely changed Mary's world. Jesus said to her, Mary. One word, Mary. This absolutely changed her world. For each and every one of us who are followers of Jesus, we have heard him call us by name too. We know what that's like. Mary hears him call her by name. He knows her by name because she is his. And listen, whether you have ever heard Jesus call you by name or not, you have to know he knows you by name because you already belong to him because he died for you because you are his. Jesus says, Mary. She turned around and said to him in Hebrew, Rabuni, which means teacher. And she and it's like for the first time she sees him again. The veil has been lifted, her eyes are clear, and she finally sees the one in whom she hoped, the one in whom she trusted. She finally sees clearly that it's him. She hears his voice, and she knows his voice because those who belong to him know his voice. And she runs to him, she throws her arms around him, and she holds him tightly. Jesus said to her, and this is a little confusing, Jesus said to her, don't, don't hold on to me. Not yet, because I haven't ascended to the Father yet. We're going to talk about that a little bit next week. It's kind of confusing. This is all confusing. But go to my brothers and say to them, go to Peter and John and the rest, go to them and say, I have ascended, I'm ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. And so Mary Magdalene, she went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. Unbeknownst to Mary, to Peter, to John, to any of them, it turns out Jesus is alive. It turns out, we read it in this story, we read it in every gospel story, we read it throughout the New Testament, it turns out that God the Father brought Jesus up from the dead to new life, to a new and better and richer and more powerful eternal life and set him on his own two feet. Turns out, that death, the grave, hell itself, could not contain the power of God in this man. And it turns out that Mary was absolutely right to put that level of hope in him. She just couldn't see it yet. For us, though, I want to say, the things that we put reasonable hope in or unreasonable hope, these things, they're not guaranteed to last because nothing lasts forever. Whether it's our job, whether it's our relationships, the people who we hope in, their health will fail them, whether it's our um, secure future that maybe looks a little less secure, or the dream that we have set out that actually looks more like a nightmare, or the path that we have set before us that all of a sudden crumbles beneath our feet, or the stuff that we have that is subject to rust and decay and to being stolen, or the people we hope in, like our leaders, our government, right? These things are not guaranteed to be there for us, to save us. The retirement fund, our bank accounts, all of these things, even the roofs that have been there for 800 years, 
that have held up for 300,000 days. They are not guaranteed to be there the next day. What Easter emphatically tells us is that Jesus will. Jesus will be there the next day. Nothing lasts forever, but Jesus does. And he has proven it true because even the most powerful force that the entire world or any world can throw at him, he has overcome. The power of God in him makes it so that he is more lasting than anything, more lasting than even death. It means that he is more ultimate than anything, even more ultimate than death. That he is more certain, that he is more reliable, that he is more true, that he is more real, that he is more secure than even death. What it means is that Jesus is more final than even death. Because he was raised from the grave on that Sunday morning to new life. And if this is true, if it's true that he was raised like this, if it is, it means that on that Easter morning, on that day, the world actually did change. And our world too. And here's why. Because if it's true that Jesus is more lasting, more ultimate, more final than anything else in the entire creation, then why would anyone or why would you not put your faith in him? Why would you trust or hope in anything that's penultimate when you can trust in the ultimate? Why would you do that? What Easter does is call into question all of the things that we, are, um, that we have our allegiances in that are not God. What it does is it makes it so that all of the things that we trust in, even the reasonable things, like our job, our relationships, our bank, all of that stuff, it's reasonable to hope in those. All of those need to be relativized compared to this one in whom we can fully trust. Because if death could not stop him, if death could not put an end to him, if death could not stop him from lasting, then what could? The answer is nothing. Nothing lasts forever but it turns out Jesus does, even through death. Now, I know for a lot of you here this morning, you believe this, your hope is in this, you've trusted in this, and your life in one way or another, or in every way, is different because of this. And you are here to celebrate that and to thank God for that. And we're glad that you're here. But maybe you are here this morning, sitting in this old race car factory, getting hungry as Easter brunch gets later and later, and none of this was on your mind when you walked into this place, or maybe it was. But you came in and you're thinking to yourself now, gosh, I don't know about all this. It's a little confusing. I don't quite, I don't know, life from the dead. That sounds crazy. But something that he's saying seems to make sense. Because, yeah, a lot of the things that I put my faith in haven't proven very faithful. A lot of the things that I put my hope in haven't really come through for me. A lot of the things that I put my great expectations on, yeah, they've let me down again and again and again. And I am tired of that. I'm tired of being let down by these things that aren't guaranteed to last. I'm tired of that anxiety. I'm tired of that fear. I'm tired of that worry. I'm tired of just being frustrated. I'm tired of being let down. I'm tired that I expect God-sized things out of things that I know aren't God-sized. Why am I like that? Why am I so foolish? I don't want that anymore. I want to trust in the thing that will last, that will outlast the worst that the world can throw at me or it. 
That's what I want to trust in. And maybe this morning you're here and you've been exposed to all of this before. You grew up around this. Maybe you've been around churches. You've been around Jesus. You've been around faith, Christianity before. And every time that you have been exposed to it, every time that you have come in, um, what you've experienced of it is more like a gardener who is of no help to you than like a savior who has overcome death for you. Maybe today is your day. Maybe this season in your life is the time where you will actually be able to see the one who is closer to you than I am even to you now and is the fulfillment of your hope, is the answer you've been waiting for, is what you can put your faith in that will last. And maybe even now, he is whispering your name into your ear, just waiting, just wanting to open your eyes so that you can see clearly for the first time. Mary goes to tell the rest of the guys, I have seen the Lord. But what about you? Have you seen the Lord? Have you seen the one truly with your own two eyes? Have you seen the one in whom you can trust, who will never fail you, who has outlasted everything, even death? Have you seen him? If not, our invitation and our hope for you is to come back and to be able to see clearly, to see for the first time, come back this spring um, and explore what you need to know to have a faith that can last, that can survive, that you can live like this and hope like this and love like this and follow Jesus like this. That's our invitation to you. Come back this spring and see for the first time, see again. Listen, nothing lasts forever, unfortunately. Nothing does. But what Easter tells us is that Jesus does. And he is the one who is worth trusting in. Let's pray. God, we thank you and we praise you for the resurrection that you brought Jesus back from the dead and on that day you changed the world forever not least of all ours if we're willing to hear it and believe it accept it in faith Lord there are plenty here including myself often who want to be able to see you clearly but can't we pray God that you would open our eyes lift the veil from before us so that we can see you if it's because there are too many tears in our eyes, we pray, Lord, that you would comfort us and take those tears away so that we can see you. If, if we can't hear you calling our name, God, we pray that you would speak more audibly, that you would sound your name to us in our ears so that we can respond, so that we can turn to you like Mary did in the garden and run to you and throw our arms around you. Because that's what, that's what we want. That's what I want. God, we pray that you would show up in our lives. Make yourself real to each and every one of us. For those of us who are able to say that we've heard you call us by name and to celebrate you and thank God, thank you for leading us down that path. For each and every one of us here who can't yet say that, we pray that you would call them, call them by name too. Jesus, as you know, there are all sorts of things that we are likely to put our hope in, our trust in, our faith in, that they might not even be bad things, but they're not you. And so we pray that you would give us the courage to put those things second, to put those things aside so that we can reach out and trust you and you alone in the ultimate sense. Put our faith and our hope and our God-sized expectations on you because you are God-sized because you are God. 
Lord, now we pray that you would help us to fix our eyes on you, on the work that you have done for us, so that we might go from this place in the light of your resurrection safely, in your company and with you. We lift all of this up to you in your name, Jesus. We sing to you now. Amen.